You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Just what does it mean to be born again? This common yet deceptively simple question is something Christians have been asking since the very beginning. Some of the most careful and extended thought uh, in answer to this question has been given by John Wesley and George Whitfield. And some of the most careful and extensive thought about John Wesley and George Whitfield on the topic has been given in Sean McGeever's new book, Born Again, The Evangelical Theology of Conversion in John Wesley and George Whitfield. To help us think about this topic, we have with us today Sean McGeever. Dr. McGeever, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, let's let's start with the big big picture question here. Uh, what what is conversion? Uh, what and and why does it need a book written about it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's a word that you know, I was familiar with, but uh, as I delved into my research more, uh, the core idea would be turning from uh, and to something. So. It's turning, uh, it's knowing, you know, what you're oriented towards uh, currently and saying, I want to turn, uh, you know, for in theological biblical studies, it would be rooted in, you know, epistrepo, which would be to turn. So uh, it's to turn from one thing to another. So, yeah, just in general, that's the big idea when you turn. And, uh, uh, in, of course, we're, we're, uh, this is a, a book aimed at evangelical Christians, so in that context, uh, it, what is a turning from, from what to what? Uh, what? What's the nature of the turn? Yeah, yeah. So for evangelical Christians, and, uh, you know, for Wesley Whitfield, be turned from uh, yourself in sinfulness to God um, and the righteousness of Christ. So it's a turning from myself uh, and towards God. I I, I want to dig a little more in, into your book, uh, but uh, before we before we get into the weeds here, uh, why uh, why Wesley and Whitfield? Why focus on them specifically? Yeah, yeah, I think it is good uh, for evangelicals to focus on Wesley and Whitfield. Uh, for those who study evangelicalism, they are part of you know what is called the first great awakening. They're really if you you know follow what Bemington and other scholars of evangelicalism do, you're going to look at this era in the early 18th century and uh, see what it is that they're talking about. And if you follow, you know, you don't have to sign on for the complete Bevington quadrilateral and a bit of a you know ongoing conversation of if these uh, four parts of his definition work, but. One of those parts of the uh, Bebbington is conversionism. And so uh, what I found was that they, um, while Bebbington and others certainly take on board this idea of conversionism being critical and essential for the explanation of what it means to be certainly an early evangelical, uh, it hadn't really been looked into as carefully as I had imagined it would have. When people do look at early evangelicals. There's a couple names that come to the fore. Um, you basically can't have a conversation about early evangelicalism without talking about uh, Edwards, Wesley, and Whitfield. Uh, you might add on a few other folks, uh, maybe maybe um, Charles Wesley. So also, when I talk about Wesley, I'm talking about John Wesley in particular. Right, that's fair. Uh, but you would say, you know, the, uh, you would, uh, that's what when we move into this more in detail, I'm always going to be referring to John Wesley. But you, you can't talk about evangelicalism, early uh, evangelicalism, without Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesley brothers, 
George Whitfield. There's some other folks you might want to add into the mix, but um, I, because I uh, was re really curious about conversion in Ed, uh, Wesley and Whitfield because of had in common, if you, you know, and I can explain more about that, but they, since they were working hand in hand um, and they were a part of these revivals where they would go and challenge people to be converted, especially a lot of folks who already thought that they were Christians or regenerate or, um, uh, you know, converted, they, they thought, I don't need to hear this. Um, I thought this is, this is worth looking into. Um, there could be another project that would include Edwards. And that would be, a, I want to move into that. I'm not an Edwards uh, expert, but I have friends uh, that are, and I'd love, I'm, as I know you, you know a bit about Edwards, um, but uh, I was really curious uh, to understand what early evangelicals thought about conversion in Wesley and Whitfield, because it was part and parcel of what it meant to be an evangelical. And it was new, it was something new um, and controversial in that era. And uh, one one more kind of big picture question, and then we'll 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 dive into the book. Uh, how is this uh, uh, not just, or how is it more than uh, a book just comparing Arminianism and Calvinism? Mm, right. Well, it certainly does some of the work of comparing Arminianism and Calvinism, but uh, I think what I would say is it moves quite a bit beyond that because what my argument is is that there is an enormous overlap in the evangelical conception of conversion, that it's in this massive overlap in this term that, that evangelicals can bring on board um, concepts of salvation, soteriology, that work both for Arminians and um, the Reformed or Calvinists. So, there's this common ground that the idea of conversion, which is uh, important to be recognized as an experience, it's on the experiential side of what uh, what we perceive, as opposed to the maybe hidden aspect of what God does in God's you know secret plans and secret um, you know moves uh, in our lives, whenever those might be. Evangelicals are going to want to uh, understand how important it is to have this experience, but also to kind of understand where that those sorts of things land. Um, the things that we experience, how do those correlate or possibly don't correlate with when I was uh, regenerated, when I was born again, when I was, when was this moment of faith? How does my baptism uh, work into this journey that I have, wherever your baptism may or may not fall? I think uh, these do go into some areas that are specific arguments and important topics for the classic debates between Arminianism and Calvinism. But I think using conversion as basically a, um, I guess, a, a place to have this discussion about our common, uh, the commonalities in which you can have, like literally Wesley and Whitfield participating uh, and working together hand in hand when you wouldn't expect them to. Otherwise, yeah, you've got a, a useful chart towards the towards the end of the book where 
you lay out, uh, this is on uh, 214, uh, where you lay out uh, Wesley's uh, uh, order of salvation, and, or Whitfield's order of salvation, and uh, Wesley's way of salvation, and uh, you, you highlight the, the fact that, for the most part, those two are the same. Uh, and uh, at least one of the differences I, I think we can probably probably fairly right off as as is just a unique oddity of Wesley's with the, the perfectionism uh, so really if, if we if we kind of factor that out uh, it's it's really just that first step right uh, in in the uh, uh, the, the nature of the original act of grace where where there's a diversion between the two categories no it's an important step right uh, and uh, uh, certainly a, a a dedicated Calvinist or a dedicated Arminian is going to say no it's yeah, maybe we, we agree on the rest of that, and we can we can share the gospel together, and we can witness together. But that first step does actually matter. Absolutely, yeah, that, that's nothing to skip over. Um, but I think the emphasis for evangelicals, which is what I think you're um, you know rightly highlighting, is that our lived experience is this moment of conversion or our experience of faith and our. Um, continuance of that faith in our life, um, we, you know, that's what our lived experience is. That's what we're doing. That's the life of faith. And so I think evangelical, well, Christians, hopefully all Christians, but I'm just speaking, evangelicals are, you know, rightly uh, concerned about that. And, and yeah, we can kind of get rid of some of the debates on the bookends, primarily the hidden decrees in the order salutis or via salutis. Um, and, and yes, Wesley's unique and, you know, evolving understanding of what perfectionism, uh, Christian perfectionism was. But it, it's in that core lived reality that, that really matters for Christians, hopefully, but certainly also for evangelicals. And, and Wesley and Whitfield map in very, very similar ways. That part is, is the overlap in the shared theology and uh, ministry that they had. Yeah, I... Uh... This is, I guess, this is a tangent, and you're you're free to tell me you have no response to, you know, the book we're not talking about. But uh, I've uh, I've been reading through Abraham Kuyper's uh, Common Grace, and he uh, he actually makes makes the point uh, that as much as he appreciates Wesley and Whitfield, they are they are dealing almost exclusively with conversion from the perspective of new converts. Uh, as opposed to people who were raised as believers and who may not necessarily know at what point they were converted, uh, and then uh, and then kind of wrestling with that, what where, where does that person fit in? The, the person who, for whom conversion either happened so young that they don't remember it, or it, it was a thing that happened but didn't radically, you know. A cause radical upheaval in their life, right? They they weren't they weren't a drug dealer, uh, they weren't a drug user, they just came to believe Christ at some point uh, in their lives. What what does conversion mean in in that sense? Uh, and again, yeah. you're you're free to decline the question because it's it's not what you're dealing no. with in the book. I just thought of it and was kind of curious. I'd love to see that in Kuiper. Um, really appreciate him. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that the audience that Wesley Whitfield were addressing was much more so um, maybe what in ter- you know, unchurched and things like that um, than than maybe maybe some other folks and so he's right to draw attention that this emphasis on conversion being born again uh, might find uh, more engagement with folks who would, who would say yeah I'm not, I, I'm not a Christian or I didn't do that but also I think that there's 
so while I want to grant that their their audience that they choose to when they go out to the you know the coal mines and the colliers and when they when Whitfield is making many transatlantic uh, travels to go over and preach all over the place. He's essentially the first Christian celebrity. He's the first massive, uh, you know, uh, just the amount of land that he covered, uh, missionary. Um, and, and then, you know, Wesley's obviously famous for his horseback riding and how much ground he traveled. So they certainly are going to some places in um, the scope of which is, is different. So they're encountering a different group. But also there's, I, I would want to push a little bit against that. Um, sure. In that, the English-speaking audience that they are addressing are, by default, going to have a some sort of Christian background. Right. Uh, you're not going to find the unchurched like, like the way that we conceive of it in today. Uh, today, um, that's not who they're uh, generally talking to. My my working assumption was, uh, and and I guess uh, not an assumption. My my understanding as I read the letters that were going back and forth, uh, by and large, these people are, are thought that they were members of the church and have been baptized. You rarely run into adult converts. Um, so when we get to the topic of baptism, they're, they, they have some of these, but by and large, it's more of a reframing of their understanding of their um, current relationship with the church. There's very few of them that have no relationship with the church. So I would grant Kuiper's... Uh, comment that that they are starting to reach and communicate conversion to an audience that was perhaps less maybe just not as christian uh, as some other folks but also if we go back a couple hundred years with english-speaking folks in their in the places that they're traveling to by and large everyone would have thought that they were churched and a christian back then Right. Well, and, and that would, I suppose, uh, slide us from a discussion of conversion into a discussion of revival, and that's, of course, beyond the uh, right. the, the scope yeah. of, uh, yeah. of your book. Um, well, uh, why don't why don't you just walk us through, uh, and you can you can start wherever you want, uh, but give us sort of the uh, uh, the the, the de- some of the details of your book. So where are and, and the the word you use in your chapter titles is uh, is motifs uh, and themes. Yeah. Uh, can you can you right. talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, where Wesley and Whitfield, uh, their conversion motifs and, and conversion themes uh, fit in, and how they compare and contrast with each other? Yeah, yeah, I can do a bit of that. that. So uh, I highlight motifs and themes. Mo- motifs would be the um, kind of core con- con- conceptual understandings that go behind the theology. Um, the common experience that, that, that both Wesley and Whitfield are identifying um, about when it comes to conversion, if you will, just kind of like a timeline. These are, this is the normal order of how things work. Those would be the, the motifs. The themes are kind of, I want to say, the supplementary topics. So they're, they're themes that relate to conversion that don't map quite uh, chronologically or diachronically. Um, so, uh, themes like your assurance of salvation, um, right. your baptism, those sorts of things. So, yeah, so I, 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 I organically, I, I hope, uh, I, you know, in reading all their, all their sermons, letters, all that, it was, they had four common, uh, motifs that came through that they, that they, you know, it's how they explained conversion. So the first one would be that turn, um, that turn from self-righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. 
um, uh, that that's how they they thought about conversion. It was an experience. So so just the general conceptuality is they both agree that it's an experience of turning to Christ, and that this begins with uh, the preaching that lands with people being either convinced, convicted, or awakened. Um, kind of in other words, they they really engage their sin in a way that's profound to them. They feel that they're a sinner. They're you know, experiencing this. And this is, you know, in other uh, eras that perceive this in Puritanism and things like this, where you go, sure. I'm, I have this deep sense of my own sinfulness upon the preaching of the word. Um, after that, um, that would then culminate in some sort of conversion moment, um, an instantaneous conversion moment. And then uh, moving forward from that, and this is a little bit unique to my uh, analysis, or maybe for uh, not doesn't map as clearly to modern evangelicalism, but an ongoing component of your conversion, uh, that it would be a continued conversion, which maps a little bit easier for Arminians and Wesley, but actually also maps with Whitfield specifically that um, this conversion isn't just only a day, uh, perhaps that you could point to, it is that, but it has an ongoing sense and an ongoing conversion, or sometimes even Whitfield talks about a second um, or daily conversion that happens that is integral to his understanding of what conversion means. And so those are those are the the motifs, basically the general concept that there's an experience that you are awakened to your sin, that you convert in a moment, and that it continues. Um, the, that's kind of the the basic uh, timeline, if you will, of what I try to walk people through for both Wesley and Whitfield. And uh, we've we've already uh, I guess we've already talked about this a little bit, but where uh, where do the two split off? Uh, uh, so that if that's those are the the points you're you're uh, you're tackling. Uh, where where is the point of tension going to fall between them? Mm. Yeah, I would say that the point of tension they have, to my surprise, they lacked tension on those four motifs. Um, there wasn't a lot of difference in the way that they viewed what the concept of conversion was. There wasn't much difference in the expectation that people would be really um, drawn uh, through the preaching of the word to by the power of the spirit, uh, by a work of grace, that, that it would be the conviction of the spirit to help them see their sinfulness and to want to cry out um, for their salvation. Uh, they both believed in instantaneous conversion, that it was a specific moment um, and it was an ongoing component. They really mapped closely on that. It's how they then articulate on those three themes um, that I mentioned, uh, where there's there starts to be more difference, uh, that there's there's a difference there. And so they have a different view when it comes to how that maps to baptism. They have a, a little bit of a, a different view about the way that that maps out with assurance. Um, and then the way that it maps out to how they make sense of the order salutis or the order of salvation and the hidden decrees, um, that's where there's more difference and they, they, they diverge. And, uh, the, uh, uh, the attendant themes, I guess maybe we should we should talk about those a, a bit more as well. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the the themes that you have? See, these are I don't want to call them incidentals because that's not fair. Uh, Especially as some of them are, you know, biblical commands. Uh, but uh, where, where do the, uh, the the themes that go along with conversion fit in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that themes. Uh, how do they? How do, yeah, how do they relate to to the core aspects of conversion? I think that if we don't address these themes, 
um, that Wes and Whitfield talk about, you really can't have a full, fully developed understanding of conversion because it's natural. Uh, I guess point in case when Wesley and Whitfield begin preaching the new birth um, to folks, they cry out and say, "We do not need this. We were converted in our baptism." And so the reason that these themes exist are because they are the common either points of confusion, points of debate points of pushback that if you don't answer these questions, you really haven't worked out what conversion means for these folks. You know, maybe not baptism, maybe on assurance of salvation. Um, how can I know that I was converted? Um, was I converted? Do I need to have assurance um, to know I was converted? I, I had it for a while. Um, then I've lost my assurance for whatever reason. Maybe it's, maybe I wasn't converted and thus Maybe I wasn't regenerated. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. Maybe I'm going to hell. So it became required for them to articulate their answers and their explanation of what it meant to be converted, which um, maps to what it means to be regenerate and maps to what it means to be born again. Right, and uh, those those were the uh, the passages where, as a Baptist, I was going to have a, a different response to some of what they had to say, of course. Um, but uh, sure. I did appreciate the point that, you know, the, the proper understanding of conversion uh, illuminates a proper understanding of baptism, of assurance, of, of all of those other things. You have to kind of get the, the conversion ducks in the row first, and then you can you can deal with the, the others. Uh, uh, again, not uh, uh, feel free to decline this question as well, uh, but uh, uh, it seems that... Uh, Dealing with Wesley and Whitfield on conversion, uh, if we fast forward 30 years, uh, along comes Charles Finney and sort of uh, uh, turns over their wheelbarrow and lights it on fire and, and does something different. Um, where, uh, uh, where are what what Wesley and Whitfield are doing? How is that different from the way maybe contemporary Christians, uh, especially living in the shadow of Finney, and maybe I shouldn't load the question like that, but uh, uh, where is what they're doing different than what we think about when we think of conversion? Right, and I think that I, I'm glad that you asked that because you know that's where this project turns from. You know, maybe an interesting point of history to something that for myself really matters. Um, and I'm not a Finney expert, so. Uh, but I think you do see uh, what I what I really wanted to do. No one, had, to my uh, knowledge, had uh, said, "Let's talk about early evangelical conversion." So this is kind of my starting place. My hope is actually to carry that project through in a detailed way, Finney and forward to today, to make sense of the way that modern evangelicals understand conversion. Maybe it's right or wrong. Maybe Wesley Whitfield are right or wrong, but at least we can understand what the um, differences or similarities are. So I, I like your question because I think it actually really matters for those of us like myself that really care about evangelical conversion. So, uh, right. So with Finney, I think one of the things that he does that if Wesley and Whitfield are to show up at a Finney revival is he tries to compress this time frame of conversion. So what you have with Wesley and Whitfield is a bit of patience, if you will. And maybe this comes from, you know, other, other, uh, lot, well, it could come from a lot of things, but, you know, the Puritan, uh, 
plan for for conversion often would stretch for an enormous amount of time. Right. As Once long it as it killed, takes. As long as it takes, and it might not ever happen. Um, uh, well, so Wes and Whitfield, one of the dynamics with them is this process of being awakened to your sin, then instantaneous conversion. When I read the accounts of this and their dialogues with it, it was common that those did not happen in the same revival. So you would have Whitfield come through and preach, and he would leave. And you would read a letter from someone saying, when Whitfield preached, I felt awakened to my sin. I felt convicted of my sin. Oh, Lord, what should I do? Then he, Whitfield uh, might come back a year later, six months later, another time, and say, then I was converted. I, I felt this, this moment. So it's quite common that that there's a, a, a quite a bit of time that happens for for the the awakening from the preaching of the word to them being converted. This is documented quite well in the letters and when you can read the dates and such. And with Finney, I feel like he's compressing one of the many things he's doing, but one of the things he's doing is he's compressing this entire conversion idea into one meeting. And th this would be something that I think that Wesley and Whitfield um, – would find unusual and new. So, you know, folks walk in and, and they're, he's preaching, you know, quite a bit of uh, hellfire and brimstone sin. Okay, fair enough. You can read similar types of sermons in, in the early evangelicals as well. But he's saying, now make that decision. And he's kind of, you know, laying on the intensity for them to decide right then, you know, um, so you, you get the anxious bench and such. So you, you, get, you get that compressed and then if you, if you follow forward, that there's there's other dynamics, but you get that in modern evangelicalism. Um, that's quite common. Let me share with you um, this idea out of nowhere. And hopefully by the end of our conversation, whether it's a few minutes or maybe an hour, perhaps all this will happen. And, and, and I'm not here to say whether that's right or wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not the Lord. Um, but sure. I would say that Wesley and Whitfield would certainly be surprised by how that time frame is compressed. That's one of the things I would say straight away. Yeah, so, uh, well, and that kind of leads into the, the question I wanted to, to end with is uh, uh, about practical application. But before we get there, uh, anything else? What what do you want uh, people to take away from, uh, uh, I, so the, the structure of this book, right, you, you, you analyze Wesley and then you analyze Whitfield and then you compare the two of them. Uh, what do you want people to take away either from your analysis of, of Wesley or your analysis of Whitfield before we get to the, the comparison or both? Right. So someone you know reads the two chapters on Wesley and then reads the two chapters on Whitfield. Uh, what do you want them to walk away with? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a couple things I'd want them to walk away with. Uh, it's not written uh, with this in aim, but I would hope honestly that some people would get excited about evangelism and conversion. Um, I think that this topic uh, is uh, really matters for our world and for um, yeah for what God is wanting to do in the world. So. Uh, while it is a, an academic, uh, detailed analysis, I actually do hope that this would um, possibly uh, make a difference uh, in people's uh, lives today. I also hope that uh, it wouldn't be as easy to peg Wesley as uh, a, a kind of an isolated uh, Arminian on, on one far edge uh, of a spectrum and Whitfield as another far edge of a spectrum. I think for those of us that teach theology, 
um, carefully, we recognize that there's there's so much commonality between them that 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 this this you know uh, just uh, caricature of Christians disagreeing on things in such you know violent ways. Who how could any of this be right when they they completely disagree on things? I think that that's so overblown that if you were to read this book and say, well, let's look on one doctrine in particular, how they understood conversion. I think that they, it might help people move to understanding that for uh, Christians, our commonality is so massive, but it's typically the the edges uh, of our disagreement which get highlighted and and really blown out of proportion in a way that doesn't do a lot of service to Christianity. Um, so I would hope that there might be a more charitable, uh, uh, more charity towards Armenians, more charity towards uh, Calvinists, but also more charity towards Christians that actually they can really work together well um, on things that really matter, even if they disagree. So I, I guess maybe a little bit of the tone that you sense. Now, and Wesley and Whitfield uh, did have a, a, a kind of a nasty a uh, couple years there in their in their you know uh, early ministry and fair enough but they really in a lot of ways did move on from that and so that reconciliation if you will though they they agreed to disagree on certain things is also a model for Christians who might share very different theological uh, convictions on uh, on topics but could still work together minister together and and want to help uh, folks so I, I think that there's a story uh, that isn't told uh, about uh, how uh, folks like with differing opinions could actually uh, work together quite well. Right. I, uh, I, I know they, uh, they, they knew each other when they were younger, um, right? They, they were in college together. Is that right? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, Wes, uh, John Wesley was uh, uh, Whitfield senior by uh, a couple years. Uh, was it seven or so? Um, and so, yeah, they were Oxford together and in the Holy club, Right. Uh, together, uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley were, were mentors to the younger Whitfield when he was a brand new student at Oxford. Um, and then they remained friends um, the entire life. In fact, Wesley uh, preached uh, Whitfield's eulogy. Uh, and so even that, that sermon there is, is fascinating uh, to hear about the relationship and he comments on their life really for Whitfield is essentially a lifelong relationship that they had. Did uh, uh, the part I'm, I don't know? Did did they ever team up for a revival? Did they ever uh, get together and uh, uh, team preach, or I guess whatever that would have looked like back then? No, no. They, they uh, I can't think of too many instances when they when they did that. Um, they were definitely busy. Uh, you know, Wesley is never goes back to the U.S. He makes one ill-fated trip and is you. Well, yeah, it would have been it would have been in England, right? Whitfield is constantly on the move. And he does retain a ministry in in, in England, in the UK or Britain. Um, but he's he's increasingly spending more and more time in in you know in early America. So uh, their they, their paths don't cross nearly as much as when they do in their foundational years when things are starting to bubble up. I, I don't recall them working on kind of quote unquote a revival um, after uh, their initial work when they start preaching together, um, out, you know, in, in the fields. So, yeah. Right. I, I knew he had done, uh, Whitfield had done some work with, uh, with Edwards. I just didn't know if he'd done some of that on the other side. Uh, 
Well, on on the uh, on the on the con- the last chapter, then the conclu- concluding chapter, uh, uh, where again you you kind of set them side by side and, and compare and contrast. Uh, what what do you want us to uh, to bring away there? Uh, other, uh, you know, I guess we've we've already hit on some of that, but uh, uh, what ad- uh, additional uh, takeaways should uh, should we get out of the uh, the Wesley Whitfield comparison on conversion? Yeah, when it comes to the comparison, I mean, maybe just for myself. I found how they handled baptism to be really fascinating. And one of the things that to me seemed like an obvious challenge was if you are from the Church of England and in the infant baptismal rite, which virtually everyone that they were talking to and themselves had undergone, it says you are regenerate. Um, It's a past tense. It happens actually in the moment of the baptism. And so how they work that out uh, to make sense of when are you really regenerate and that relationship with baptism to me um, was really interesting. The thing that maybe was most interesting to me was with Wesley's view. Um, it's in some ways it's it's er, you know early America, uh, or at least uh, American Re- Revolution that gives him the opportunity to be able to articulate that. So. When he comes over and he establishes the um, 1974 Sunday service for the you know, American Methodist uh, Church, he essentially takes the you know Book of Common Prayer, the baptismal rite, in there, and he just alters a couple words. And so, in the, in my book, I try to show that carefully. Um, but but you can see exactly what he's doing, which he he says that the a child in their infant baptism isn't necessarily regenerate in that moment. He, he just gets rid of the past tense and he makes it open that he doesn't say it this way, but essentially they could be, or it might be later. And there, the nuance that is afforded or brought, uh, the, the kind of because of in America, they didn't really want to have a church of England, uh, church. They needed to have their own church that opportunity, that historical moment provided that opportunity for him to articulate that in the way that he wanted to. I found that fascinating and pretty clear cut in a way that Whitfield isn't, doesn't do that. And he either just had, he does have a bit of a different view of what's happening in baptism or a way, a different way to explain it, but he's also not afforded the kind of cultural or historical moment to do so. I, I was left curious, say if it, if it was, um, Whitfield, who was establishing a new church in America and was drawing up his own baptismal rite, um, what would he have done there? I, I would have been really curious. Uh, I think I have some ideas, and I try to explain some of that. Um, I don't think he would have done anything with his Calvinistic viewpoint. I think he's much more comfortable with explaining um, regeneration and conversion in, in some more nuanced ways. Um, and I'd suggest that the Westminster Confession provides some uh, ways to explain what happens in baptism and with regard to regeneration and timing and things like that. Um, but yeah, when I do the comparison to me personally, uh, that, that was one of the more interesting, uh, points that I I discovered in my study. Well, if, uh, if people want to read more about, uh, Wesley and Whitfield, uh, either on conversion or in general, uh, they should read your book, right? And then uh, having read that, uh, what else should they go out and pick up? Yeah. You know, I think uh, the best book on Whitfield that's come out, uh, the best biography is by Thomas Kidd. So Thomas Kidd, uh, and he actually shared some of his uh, uh, core primary research uh, 
to me uh, when I was at St. Andrews uh, for this before his uh, biography came out. But they would certainly want to read Thomas Kidd's recent biography on uh, George Whitfield. I think that's the best. It's a great read. It's fantastic. Thomas Kidd continues to comment on that era um, and on evangelicalism. So he's he's a great source for that, not just as a biographer, but also um, with some theological insight along the way that's super helpful. Um, for, for Wesley, theologically, um, I, I found Randy Maddox at Duke really helpful, um, as well, as well as others. Um, uh, so, but, uh, yeah, Responsible Grace is probably, uh, a, a really, uh, theologically a great book. But then as far as biographies ago, there's a bunch of them, but I would say that, uh, there's not a recent one, uh, that I would say this is the go-to, um, it's not as clear cut, but with uh, Whitfield, there there is. It's it's certainly uh, kids' work. Yeah, there is. A, and maybe you you may not have uh, you may not have uh, seen uh, seen it. There's a series of uh, oh theologians on the Christian life. I think is the name of the series. Uh, and there there is one that uh, Fred Sanders has out on Wesley now. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, yeah, and that's great. And Fred wrote a blurb for my book. Yeah. Uh, Fred has been really generous and kind uh, senior scholar uh, to me. And yeah, yeah, he has a great one. I think it's by Crossway. Um, yep, yep. Yeah. I, I can't remember uh, if there's one on Whitfield or not, but there uh, isn't. I'm there sure there is will be. One. Actually, well, it's in the works. Uh, Tom Schwanda okay. yep. is, is writing that. So and Tom and I are friends and work on some projects together. So that will be coming out. And I'm Tom's fantastic, so I'm sure I'll be excellent. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, the, I've been super impressed with that series so far. Right. Yeah, there's also the um, – well, let me see if I can – I want to make sure I have the, the title right. Um, moving a few books because I'm working on a different project right now. Um, I, I understand. My, my desk is the same way. Uh, yeah. Let's see here. Good Lord. Um Here we are. Yeah, I would say that the IBP uh, series on the history of evangelicalism, Mark Knoll wrote The Rise of Evangelicalism, The Age of mm-hmm. Edward Field and Wesley's, uh, the Wesley's. That's that's a go-to book for someone that just wants to dive into this. And this will also highlight uh, Jonathan Edwards' role, which is, like I said before, um, essential to understand this era. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think uh, Mark Knoll's Rise of the uh, ri- the Rise of Evangelicalism would be a, a go-to book for sure. Uh, well, it's uh, the practice here on Christian Humanist Profiles to give the guests the last word. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll turn it over to you, and I'll let you tell our listeners whatever you think they need to hear about Wesley, about Whitfield, about conversion, uh, about anything you like. Sure. Thanks, Cole. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that I had no idea how engaging reading the sermons of Wesley and Whitfield would be. Uh, I think that sometimes people thought, well, you know, they were just kind of dumbing down stuff. They were just preaching to the common folk. And as it turns out, it's some of the richest and most theologically nuanced and insightful sermons. It's uh, really any sermons from that era uh, will really stand out from maybe sermons that we're hearing in uh, modern day. Um, but I was just really encouraged to, to hear them really d- dive into scripture. Uh, essentially, every every sermon is just taken apart uh, a passage of scripture 
and then just the the energy that they have for for what they were having uh, expecting to have in the world to have happen it was something that i personally was um, i guess encouraged and motivated by you know i work full time for young life so i talk to young folks um, and people about uh, conversion i talk about what does it mean to be a christian all the time and so i was uh, very excited and motivated uh, reading uh, about them. I think anyone could pick up an old book of sermons from Whitfield or Wesley and be really encouraged. And I think it would um, be a catalyst probably for, for emotional life or maybe their idea about you know, evangelism or, or even just sanctification, wanting to grow in their faith. I, I think that there's a, a real wealth of riches uh, that could be unpacked by just opening up a couple of sermons there. And then the second thing I would say is that as a modern evangelical, which is what I am, that there is a just a real lack of the trajectory for what it means to be a Christian, which would be uh, Whitfield and Wesley insisted that to be a genuine convert had to do with the continuance of walking on that path. Um, and, and without going into too much detail about that, that has been lost. I feel like Easy believism, only saying an isolated sinner's prayer and then sticking that in the back of your pocket until the rest, until you die. That whole idea, um, which is prevalent in how people talk about the faith and about evangelism today, is something that we really need to rescue and retrieve some really excellent thinking from the past upon. I think this moment in time that we have right now will be one that we will regret because of a truncate, uh, truncated view of what the gospel is and what it means to be saved. All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you, Dr. McGeever, for coming on the show. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been Christian Humanist Profiles, a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For more information about this show or other shows on the network, please go to christianhumanist.org. And please be listening for another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.